there are thunderstorms in the Amazon. And at night, these will back up along the Andes. And there's this wonderful sky fire show from these very towering thunderheads. You know, on an evening when you're coming down late, and the sun is setting, and there's this gold uh, light that falls on the ice cap and it's reflected. It's just incredible colors. I really appreciate having had the opportunity to see these parts of the world before they undergo change. And uh, unfortunately, I've also documented those changes. Hi, I'm Heather Greenwood-Davis, and this is Episode 2 of Tarmac Warriors by SAP Concur Solutions, the show where we explore where business travel is going through the eyes of some of the world's most extraordinary business travelers. In 2020, transportation accounted for 24% of global CO2 emissions. Aviation alone was responsible for a whopping 3% of that. Concerned citizens and socially responsible companies often want to do the right thing, but sometimes they fall short when it comes to knowing exactly what to do or how to do it. So we sat down with one of the world's leading climate scientists, who also happens to be a tarmac warrior. Dr. Lonnie Thompson is about as big a rock star as you get when it comes to climatology. His research at Ohio State University over the past 40 years has revolutionized our understanding of climate change. He's won far too many awards to name, but some highlights include the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, regarded as the environmental science equivalent of the Nobel Prize. He was also named one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Environment, and in 2007, he was presented the National Medal of Science by President George W. Bush. Lonnie believes the only way to impact our climate future is to understand our climate past. His business travel has taken him around the world, drilling the oldest known ice samples on the planet. Ice samples that can only be found on the glaciers of equatorial mountaintops. Hi, Lonnie. Such a pleasure to have you here and what an honor to meet you. Uh, Thank you, Heather. It's... uh... A pleasure to talk to you today. Can you start by telling us in a nutshell who you are and what you do so that our listeners understand exactly who I'm talking to? I'm a paleoclimatologist, a glaciologist by training. I study glaciers and we drill ice cores from all over the world. Uh, We've had the opportunity to drill in 16 different countries in addition to Antarctica and Greenland. And the glaciers uh, record the history of the climate of this planet. If you go high enough or to where it's cold enough, every year the snowfall is preserved and we can actually reconstruct annual climate from these cores back to 20, 30,000 years. And so the average person probably doesn't even understand what an ice core is. I didn't until I started to learn some more about you. Can you help us understand that? What is it you're collecting? Well, I, I would say that I didn't understand what an ice core was when I came to Ohio State University. I actually came here to 
study cold geology because I grew up in West Virginia and I was looking for a job when I got out. But an ice core is a cylinder of ice that's obtained from a glacier by drilling down vertically at the summit of the glacier. And we bring up segments of core and then you lower the drill again and you continue this process until you reach the bedrock. So you have a long history of climate for that glacier. But the beauty of the ice is that it records everything that's in the atmosphere. So there's a history of not only climate, things like temperature and uh, precipitation, uh, but there's also a history of the forcings of climate. We can look at the volcanic eruptions of the past through the sulfate and tephra that's preserved. We have a history of the greenhouse gases trapped in the bubbles in the ice. We now have histories of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide going back over 800,000 years from our polar cores. So they're wonderful recorders of our past. And what we've tried to do is collect those records from as many different locations on our planet as possible because the ice cap is melting very rapidly now. So you're on a race against time to get these samples before the glaciers disappear. I'm wondering why it's so important to study ice caps around the equator. What secrets are they hiding? You know, most people don't put glaciers and ice together with the tropics, but they are truly the best recorders of the history of this planet. And the reason these areas are so important is that when you get outside of the higher latitudes, the things that impact the climate and people's lives are things like El Ninos and monsoons. And these are tropical phenomena. If you look at the fact that we live on a sphere, over 50% of the surface area of our planet and about 70% of the 7.8 billion people who live on this planet actually live between 30 degrees north and 30 degrees south of the equator. So it's a very important area to understand both natural and human-driven climate change. You know, I think we've kind of glossed over the fact that um, going out on one of these expeditions, on one of these field trips, as you call them, um, you know, isn't just sort of, you know, pack your bag, head out, show up at the top. Like there's a lot involved in getting there. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, sort of slowly walk us through as if we were with you what it's actually like to, to go on one of these field trips once you land in destination. We have to take everything that you need from clothing to field supplies, to food supplies, to medical supplies, and be able to uh, function in a remote part of the world for two or three months with up to 60 people at a remote camp. It makes it really challenging. And I, I would also point out that we also use every form of transportation that exists on this planet and many on one single expedition. For example, we may use uh, air travel and air cargo to move out of the U.S. to Beijing, China, and we might use ground transportation for equipment from Beijing to Lhasa, uh, we'll use trucks to transect the Tibetan Plateau into the mountain range where we're going to work. And if we're working in the Himalayas, 
we will then have to switch from trucks to yaks because yaks are the only form of animal transport in those high elevation environments. They have adapted for uh, thousands of years to be able to function in that environment. Then when we get to the ice, we use uh, Sherpas and porters to transport that equipment up to the drill sites. So we use just about every human transport system on every expedition we, we encounter. <laughs> so, so just really your traditional, typical business trip then? Yeah, right. And uh, does it weigh on your mind at all that, you know, you're on the one hand, you're going out there and you're doing all these things we need you to do in order to help save the planet. And on the other hand, travel requires you to get on these planes and whether you're going to conferences or you're traveling to actually do the work, you know, use those fossil fuels. Do you wrestle with that at all? Yes, I do think of that. I think that it takes uh, the realization that we would not have the world that we have now had it not been for the development of fossil fuels. I think the problem is that we are very efficient at what we do, and uh, as are the fossil fuel companies. I mean, you know, all you're really doing is harvesting the forests that once grew on this planet millions of years ago, and we're bringing it all to the surface and we're consuming it and uh, releasing all that carbon back into the atmosphere very abruptly, which is driving up the temperatures of the planet. And when I look at my career, you know, I think about the amount of fuel that is consumed in not only transporting my field team, but transporting six tons of equipment into these uh, remote parts of the world and then bringing out, in addition to the equipment, four to five tons of ice and you're air cargoing this from the other side of the world. Yes, there's a lot of energy being consumed. And I think that even in, in the science community, the fact that we get together in these international meetings, like the American Geophysical Union, you know, 27,000 people go to San Francisco or wherever the meeting's being held. Uh, they all ride airplanes uh, to go there, and those planes require fuel. The important thing is that with time and uh, the, the rise of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, we now know the harmful side effects. And we have to deal with uh, changing the way we go about what we do. You know, business travelers like yourself are also sort of weighing these things and trying to figure out, you know, how, and you touched on some of this, you know, they can do some meetings closer to home. Maybe they're not always getting on a plane, but when it comes down to it, they, you know, there's still going to be a lot of travel. Are there things that you've seen during your travels that you think business travelers might be able to, to learn from and, and use to help uh, make their travels a little less harsh on the earth? I think there are ways that we can redesign our transport system so that people can still travel when they have to, but we all need to look at ways where we have to really evaluate whether this travel is essential for whatever employment we're involved in. Yeah, and I think I think we all want to believe that the choices we're making, no matter how small, are going to make a difference. I think the question is, do they do they actually make a difference? Do you think that that little things can can change and and help? Uh, absolutely. I, I saw a, a calculation on 
when you pack your luggage for an airplane, you know, one of the fuel consuming parts is how much you pack. And if you remove one pair of shoes, collectively, it makes a big difference. I mean, there, there are 7.8 billion of us on this planet. The little things we do make a big difference in the big picture. But some things like transportation, these are going to require policies, governmental policies. And I think each industry has to look at what they do and ways to continue to be sustainable as a company, but reduce the amount of fossil fuels required. What Lonnie is suggesting, and what many experts agree, is that action is required on three levels. The personal level, the industry level, and the societal level. At the personal level, there's a lot you can do to make an impact right away. We talked to Eva Ramirez about some easy ways to get started. Eva is a lifestyle, wellness, and travel writer and a contributor to the Forward Lab, a digital platform that covers all aspects of a modern, sustainable lifestyle. And uh, I tend to touch on the subjects of conscious travel and ways we can be sustainable when we're traveling as well. So what do you think the goals should be when it comes to sustainability for travelers? Generally speaking, the goal when we travel is essentially the same as when we're not traveling. It's to be a good global citizen. So that means, you know, be kind, have a positive impact, respect nature and local communities, spend wisely, use your resources wisely. These are things that essentially we think about when we're at home and we don't need to leave our values at home when we travel, take them with us. So if you recycle at home, try and recycle when you travel. If you avoid single-use plastics at home, keep these habits up when you're outside of your usual environment. So if you're speaking to the business traveler and you wanted to say to them, here are four or five things that you can specifically think about bringing with you the next time you're packing, what might those be? I think with business travel in particular, you know, you're usually there for a short amount of time. You don't have checked baggage, which means that you can't pack your normal size toiletries, your shampoo bottle that you have at home. You can't really take that with you. So it's difficult because those travel minis are really helpful. But can you use a bar of soap instead? You know, um, can you pack your reusable water bottle, uh, a good old keep cup? Everyone loves those for their coffee on the go. I'd say a reusable tote bag for if you're going shopping or picking anything up, you don't need to use a plastic bag. Your own utensils in general, like a reusable cutlery set when you're traveling, or this sounds a bit nerdy, but I never travel without a Tupperware, like a reusable food container, just because it reduces your food waste if you can't finish a meal and you want to get a takeaway. And again, that will probably come in single-use plastic. Or a lot of the times I've been caught, you know, delayed flights, stuck in an airport at an ungodly hour, nothing's open, and you wish you'd packed the remainder of your dinner the night before in your reusable container. Been there. Yeah, right. We've had a year and a half in our homes living really localized lives where we've been able to take stock of everything. And we've seen the positive impact that less travel has had on nature. You know, everyone saw those photos at the start of the pandemic of animals out on the streets or rainforests or trees growing back across the planet. So don't beat yourself up, but realize that it's never too late to make a change. 100%. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. 
These great swaps, they're just the beginning. There are a ton of new apps popping up that can help you make more sustainable choices when you travel. Kinder, with a Y, suggests eco-friendly hotel and dining options. Refill helps you find places to fill your water bottle. And Wim lets you book public transportation and ride shares instead of relying on private transportation once you're at your destination. But maybe the most impactful thing you can do if you really want to make a difference is to talk about the problem. Tell the people around you that you care. According to the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, increased conversation is key to increasing public engagement with climate change. But while a majority of Americans care deeply about global warming, only about 30% of us actually talk to our friends and family about it. This phenomenon is known as the climate change spiral of silence. It happens when folks who genuinely care about sustainability avoid voicing their worry because they don't hear anyone else talking about it. So the spiral continues. Lonnie knows all about the spiral of silence. I think this is something that is extremely important. And my daughter told me probably over 10 years ago, she, she told me, Dad, you know that one more ice core is not going to change the trend that we're on. She said, you need to reach millions of people in order to make a difference. And to that end, I understand you're releasing a TEDx talk. How is preparing for that helping you to become a better storyteller? Well, I, I can tell you that I have never prepared so much for a 14-minute talk. I, I think there's two ways to tell a story. One, you can appeal to the mind, uh, the, the academic part, but you can also appeal to the heart. And in telling that story, you can get out the bigger picture, in my case, of climate change and the fact that we do have to deal with this, that it becomes much more effective. Having a great and successful TED Talk is only going to happen by making your message concise and understandable for people, you know, like myself, who before meeting Lonnie had never heard of Ice Core, or had never heard of any of his research. This is Cecilia Walter. She's a civil engineering and environmental science student at Ohio State. She's also on the university's TEDx committee. And even though there's about a 50-year age gap between them, Cecilia was Lonnie's coach for his TEDx talk. She was tasked with helping him make his message relatable to the average college student. But her advice for Lonnie really applies to anyone trying to make their communication more effective. Everything should connect. That's the reason you're trying to tell us something in the first place. You know, all these ideas should relate to one another to make it digestible for the audience. And what was it about Lonnie's message that stood out for you? So one of the most important things that I, that I loved about Lonnie's talk was that in the end, he wanted to be hopeful about this matter. You know, he didn't want people feeling really pessimistic about what might come because of climate change. These are facts that he's found. You can't change facts. But I loved that he wanted to focus on what can we do with the information we've been given. You know, everyone does have a voice and your voice can have an impact both on the way you approach a situation and the way you combat it. 
You're listening to Tarmac Warriors, a new podcast from SAP Concur Solutions. Join travel writer Heather Greenwood Davis and three extraordinary business travelers, a big wave surfer, a tropical fruit expert, and a climate scientist, and see what we can learn about where business travel is going. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Not everyone listening to this podcast will have the chance to give a TED Talk, but you can still make an impact beyond your own carbon footprint. Tell your companies that you care. If a company shifts its operational approach to sustainability, suddenly you're affecting hundreds, if not thousands of carbon footprints. That takes us to the second level of impact, the industry level. So to start with Gus, maybe you can tell us who you are and what you do. Absolutely. My name is Gus Vonderheide. I'm Vice President of Global Sales with Hyatt Hotels. I've been with Hyatt for 28 years, and I've been in the hotel business for 41 years. So it's about all I've done since high school, which has <laughs> been a tremendous career. I oversee a, an above-property sales team that manages about, oh gosh, uh, a few thousand accounts, corporate association, leisure agency, travel management companies at the very highest level. But our job is to make sure that they find their way into a Hyatt before one of our competitors pulled them into their properties. Fair enough. Talk to us about sustainability in your industry. Yeah, sustainability has become a very hot topic with our corporate customers. They are looking to save water and, and carbon footprints, and they want to know what their hotel partners are doing in that regard. So it's an interesting dynamic because as we come back from recovery, Customers are saying, yes, we're ready to get traveling again, but we want to know what you're doing in these areas. So are there solar panels on the roof? Are we counting water waste? Are we looking at how we're recycling in our hotels? And we're having to report on that like we've never had before. I find it so interesting that you were saying that, um, you know, the corporate client is almost demanding these things. I think that's really interesting, actually. Well, they're making buying decisions based on these things now. It, it's funny because in many cases it used to be a would like, and now it's really a must have. And we're having customers saying, look, you know, we're going to have 400 hotels in our hotel program next year. And if they're not doing this, this, and this, they won't be chosen. So it's, it's a much more of a serious uh, ask at this point where hotels have got to say, look, we want this business from this organization, which is a, you know, a good customer of ours. We're going to have to play by these rules, which it's, it's good because that, that, that kind of expectation, I think, will get us there faster as an industry. My name is Sarah Wilkin. I'm founder and CEO of Flygrid Alliance. We are working to increase the production, supply and use of sustainable aviation fuel. And we work with the business travel sector to develop sustainable travel policies through our program, FGA Travel Smart. Yeah, I feel like sustainable aviation fuel is really a hot topic right now in the travel industry. Absolutely. The industry completely wants the technology. The European Commission, IATA, and globally, it's very accepted and wanted. However, what I found is that there was very little awareness of what sustainable aviation fuel is, and none of the investors had really heard of it, were investing in it, had, had thought about it as a future portfolio prospect. So just to give some context to our listeners, SAFs or SAFs 
are considered clean substitutes for fossil fuels. They're usually made from sustainable resources like agricultural bio-waste, and they have around 80% fewer emissions than traditional aviation fuel like kerosene. So my question for you, Sarah, is this seems like a no-brainer. Why isn't every airline using this stuff? That's exactly what I thought when I heard about the fuel. It is a lot about the price. It's three times as expensive as kerosene. And that what the airlines have said is they will take the fuel. However, to stay competitive, it's not possible that they could purchase the fuel. So then the investors say, yeah, we've got the finance, we can make the financial structures, but who is going to buy the fuel? So it's a bit of a catch-22 and you're working to help sort those issues out so that everyone can win. That's why I set up Fly Green Alliance. What we are doing is accelerating work at investor level. We're creating research projects where we measure carbon and then create sustainable travel policies for corporate customers and travel management companies that wish to have green travel programs and also commit to buying sustainable aviation fuel. And you aren't the only ones doing this, right? Microsoft recently set up an alliance called Saba, the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance. United set one up called EcoSkies Alliance. So there's this larger trend to set up these groups that allow corporations, airlines, even travelers themselves to help pay for this fuel. Essentially, what is happening is multiple alliances are developing, which is what we need. It's high-level support at policy level, alliance level, airline level, and corporate traveler level. So it's good news for sustainable travel because we can start to say that the commitment at corporate level is having an effect. I'm wondering, you know, how much of the changes that are happening now are being driven by consumer sentiment? And is that part of the trend that's driving this? Yeah, it will be consumer-led. As we know Greta has done an incredible amount of work to raise awareness for climate. We can see because the term flixkum, which is the Swedish term for flight shaming, the statistics show it has had some effect. Right. Flight shaming or flixkum. It's funny how a little bit of embarrassment can go a long way. I think influence is going to change a lot for the travel industry. And I think it really is a time where everybody wants to accelerate work in sustainable travel. And I think we've got some good ways to do it now. So when pressure from individuals and actions from corporations reach a critical mass, that's when you get to start talking about societal change. We're seeing it happen even now in France and elsewhere in the EU, where short haul flights are being banned and taxes are being introduced to offset their impact. Similar initiatives are gaining ground around the world. We had a chance to speak with Andrew Charlton, Managing Director of Aviation Advocacy, about the local and global efforts to create policy changes at the highest possible levels. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Tell us a little bit about Aviation Advocacy Geneva. Exactly what is it? What are you doing there? It's a small consulting firm. We do government affairs, which is a fancy way of saying lobbying, although it sort of sounds less horrible, doesn't it, when you say it that way. We do a lot of policy consulting, a lot of work on what people need to say and do. I spend a lot of time talking to regulators, trying to get them to understand what a sensible decision would look like. And what are you seeing policy-wise right now going on in this space? In Europe, which has always been forward-leaning on the matter of sustainability generally across the board, 
there are three or four very interesting things happening. The first thing, there is a huge push to reduce emissions in Europe by 55% by 2030. So in other words, in eight years or nine years, which is a massively complicated task and will take a huge amount of changes and frankly, sacrifices. Right. They actually just announced the Fit for 55 proposal last week. The next thing that seems to be coming out is a movement on the part of the intra-European members to tax fuel, jet fuel. At the moment, courtesy of a, a convention signed in 1944, the fuel used for international flights is tax-free. But the union is looking at taxing it for flights between, for example, Paris and Berlin. It clearly wouldn't be taxed for a flight between Paris and New York, at least not without the consent of the Americans, but at least within Europe, that will happen. That, of course, has a knock-on effect because it makes flying in Europe much more expensive for European airlines. Right. Not only is there a move to tax fuel, but there's a move to eliminate short-haul flying. And specifically, for example, in France, flights of less than 500 kilometres, the recommendation is if you can do it by train, you're not allowed to operate the flight. So we're starting to see a real move towards multimodal travel and towards encouraging door-to-door travel that is significantly more sustainable. Beyond that, beyond multimodal travel, are there other solutions being discussed? One of the things that is proposed and that ICAO has proposed, the international organisation, is to do offsetting. Here's what offsetting is. The doctor tells you that you're not allowed to smoke anymore. So you pay a little boy not to smoke and then you can keep on smoking. Terrific. That's offsetting. That's how offsetting works. So we have to be very careful. We have to be absolutely sure that if we are going to use offsetting, they've got to be completely, completely Rolls-Royce. They've got to be gold standard, gold-plated, indeed solid gold, because the capacity for leakage and for, frankly, gestures and greenwashing are very high in offsetting. Specifically, you know, this this podcast goes out to business travellers who mm-hmm. I think right now a lot of them are weighing uh, the fact that probably they used to travel a lot more often than it looks like they'll be travelling in the moment. Um, mm. Can you speak specifically to the decisions they may need to make? Increasingly, I think we are going to travel more like the way an Australian travels, by which I don't mean you've got to drink a lot of beer and sing time my kangaroo down sport. (laughs) But what I mean is no one flies from Sydney to London for a four-hour meeting. If you're going to London for a meeting that's terribly important, you will put a week's worth of meetings into that schedule and then you'll go to Paris for three days and to Frankfurt for two days. And so you will concentrate your travel around one long-haul flight. So I can foresee a situation where the purchasing department will say, of course you can travel. We believe in business travel. We understand the need for business travel. That's why we're giving you one trip a quarter. Travel is important. Travel matters. Business gets done. Families get visited. Humans educate themselves. They grow, they learn. Travel is important, but we have to be sensible about it. Andrew, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. So Lonnie, Is there a role for business travellers or even travellers in general to make a difference here? Well, I think we all have a role to play. And I've always thought if we all do what we can in the sphere that we influence, 
the change will be big. And as I say, I, I'm absolutely sure that if we don't make these changes, the system will make the changes for us. And nature can be very cruel in the way that it brings about changes. And every business traveler, you know, I realize that in many ways they're not unlike the coal miners, that they have to go down the mine and work in order to feed their families and raise their children. But we all have to look beyond our own needs to this bigger need that we have to work together to solve this problem. And we all can make a difference. If it's if nothing more than packing one less bag for your trip. We're leaving out one pair of shoes, right? And we're leaving out one pair of shoes. Exactly. <laughs> you know, change is always difficult. But human beings have gone through changes, tremendous changes. And things that we do now and we take for granted didn't exist. I mean, I, I think of just basic things. Like if you went back to London you know, 300 years ago, there was no sanitation. There were no sewer systems. There was no toilets. And, you know, every Wednesday they threw the crap out the window and there were people who came through and gathered that and took it out and turned it into fertilizer. And I mean, you can imagine if you suddenly you told people who have apartments or hotels that they have to put in a special room and they have to put in plumbing and water and you have to dig up the streets and put in sewers. I mean, there was all kind of pushback. But it didn't stop the change. The change had to take place. And it did. And now we accept it. And you can look, there's been energy transformations through time. Uh, and likewise, we will make the transition from fossil fuels to alternative energy simply because we will have no choice. And it's always better to embrace the change. And there are great opportunities that will come with that change. And more importantly, our children will have a healthier world in which to live. Lonnie, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Heather. My guest today was Dr. Lonnie Thompson. You can learn more about him and his important research by visiting his website, www.bird, that's B-Y-R-D, dot O-S-U dot E-D-U. And keep an eye out for Canary, a feature documentary coming out this year that's all about Lonnie's incredible personal story and mission. Be sure to stay tuned for the third installment of Tarmac Warriors, where we'll be learning all about compliance through the eyes of a tropical fruit expert. And if you haven't already, please click the subscribe button. Give us a like. For SAP Concur Solutions, I'm Heather Greenwood Davis. Thanks for listening.